Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for joining us today, and listening, and thereby supporting the podcast. That's great. (laughs) Thank you. How are you, Ben? You've been kind of out of it all day. Yeah, I'm very tired. Um, what are we watching? Uh, today we are watching Invisible Ghost from 1941. All right, sounds like a fun time. Sounds potentially like a horror movie. Potentially. Uh, it stars Bela Lugosi. Okay. And it's from Monogram Pictures. Mm, I mean, some of the Poverty Row pictures we've seen have been pretty good, like Devil Bat. Yeah, Devil Bat was PRC. Yeah. Um... Yeah, the last monogram picture that we saw was the ape, which uh, wasn't good, Sarah. That's why I said Poverty Row. <laughs> yeah. So, but but you're right. Um, the Devil Bat was the last Bela Lugosi movie we saw, mm-hmm. and it wasn't good either. But we had a lot of fun watching it. Yeah. Bela Lugosi's career um, was not in a good place in 1941. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about this in previous episodes, but. Universal wasn't really interested in him anymore, and neither were really many of the other major studios. Um, he had done a film for RKO in 1940, after The Devil Bat, called You'll Find Out, which teamed him with Boris Karloff and Peter Lorre. Um, but this was a comedy which poked fun at Lugosi's boogeyman image. Um, I've mentioned it in previous episodes. It stars Kay Kaiser and his band. Yeah, something I wanted to see, but it doesn't fit the podcast. Mm-hmm. It might come out as a horror-adjacent episode if we ever get to that level of our Patreon. But uh, yeah, it's basically just a, a comedy starring a musician, like a novelty musical act. Yeah. It's like a Lonely Island movie. It's the 1940s equivalent <laughs> of a Lonely Island movie. So... What Bella really wanted at this time was to be the star of a movie, um, not like a minor role that was being used for the cachet his name could bring to a poster. Mm-hmm. So he signed that contract with PRC that we talked about in the Devil Bat episode, but that contract was non-exclusive. So it provided work only when PRC had work to give him, Um, but he was free to still get work from other sources. So, in 1941, Bella signed a contract for three films for producer Sam Katzman, which would end up being extended to a total of nine films in all. Well, that's good. That's kind of what he was looking for. Mm Mm-hmm. So, Sam Katzman. I, I like his name. He started as a prop boy at Fox Films, and rose up to become an assistant director. He then became a producer of westerns at Supreme Pictures, and in 1935 he formed his own company, Victory Pictures, which operated for the next five years primarily producing westerns. Katzman became known for making films very, very, very cheaply. (laughs) Um, But these were films that got 
very high box office returns, uh, at least proportionally. Um, so all of them were very profitable. You know, the movie would maybe only make $500,000 at the box office, but it maybe cost like $700 to make kind of thing, right? <laughs> Where it's like, you know, it's not a huge blockbuster hit, but like... Because you're spending so little. little. Exactly, you're, you're taking more in. In 1940, Victory Pictures closed down because Katzman moved to Monogram Pictures, essentially becoming the head of his own unit within Monogram. You mean like a department, or...? Basically, he was like the equivalent of the head of the B-movie department, but at Monogram. So, essentially, Katzman's movies were B-movies to B-movies. C-movies? C? I don't know. Double B? Yeah, the point is, like, that's the thing you have to keep in mind. Like, if, if you know, if you imagine, like, a like a graph where you have, like, an A picture and then you move down to, say, like, a B picture, like, say, uh, Mad Made Monster is a good example. And then you have the regular monogram movies being made for the, about the same amount of money that Mad Made Monster was made for. And then you have a Sam Katzman picture, like, way down proportionally as low again. And I mean, we've talked before about how Monogram was one of the bigger or like higher up the ladder. Poverty, Poverty Row Studios. Studios. Yeah, absolutely. So, second second to Republic, yeah. So I guess it kind of makes sense that there would be like similar to how Universal has a B movie department that Monogram would have a similar type of structure. Yeah. Katzman's big success was a series of films called The East Side Kids. I think I've heard of this. So at this time, kid gang movies were very popular. Yeah. In fact, kid gangs were kind of a popular concept in general. Uh, If you know Golden Age comic books like I know Golden Age comic books, you'd be familiar with things like the Newsboy Legion and the Boy Commandos and stuff like that. Um, So there was, of course, our gang... Uh, a.k.a. the Little Rascals, uh, over at MGM. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the more direct inspiration in this case was a series called The Dead End Kids at Warner Brothers, uh, which was basically a series about a group of young New York City tough street kids with all the kind of, like, gritty that you could imagine from, like, a Warner Brothers sort of series, right? Universal then copied that formula with the little tough guys, and then Katzman copied that with Eastside Kids. So basically, it's a copy of a copy. Um, in 1945, Katzman left Monogram for Columbia, um, but Monogram kept the series going, uh, renaming it The Bowery Boys, which then went from 1946 to 1958 when the series finally ended. Wow, that's a lot of kids. Yep. So other than the East Side Kids, Katzman's main activity at Monogram was the nine films he produced with Lugosi, which are known to Bell Lugosi fans as the Monogram Nine. <laughs> After leaving Monogram and going to Columbia, he produced the Superman serials at Columbia, which were the first live-action depiction of the character. Uh, he also was the producer behind the long-running Jungle Jim series. Is that gym as in, like, a name? Yes. Or gym as yeah, in, like, like a, a gymnasium? No, like, imagine, like, a dude named Jim who has adventures in the jungle. Okay. Because <laughs> I definitely was thinking, like, a jungle gym that kids play on. Sure. Uh, his career continued through making Elvis Presley movies 
and teen beach movies. Of course. Uh, until his last film in 1972 and his death in 1973. Wow, making movies right up till the end. Mm-hmm. So this first Lugosi-Katzman collaboration was originally known as Murder by the Stars. Then the title changed to The Phantom Monster. Then by the time they were filming it, it was called The Phantom Killer. And then by the time it was released, it was Invisible Ghost. The screenplay uh, was an original story written by African-American actress Helen Martin. Uh, Helen Martin's big debut as an actress was as Vera Thomas in Orson Welles' Mercury Theater adaptation of Richard Wright's novel Native Son. However, later in life, she became well-known to TV audiences as Wanda on Good Times from 1974 to 1979 and as Pearl Shea on 227 from 1985 to 1990. Okay. So this is her first screenwriting? This is her only screenwriting. She's basically an actress. She's more famous for that. Okay. Yeah. The film's director is Joseph H. Lewis, an experienced B-movie director. Invisible Ghost was his 15th film since his career began in 1937. He had started in Hollywood as a camera assistant in 1927, rising to become an assistant editor in the 1930s. As a director, he became known for injecting visual style and interesting compositions even into the quickly produced B pictures that he was hired to make. Oh, that's a good sign, because, like, the more stylish a horror movie is, the kind of better it tends to do. Initially, um, this extra effort that he put in to making even these B movies earned him the derogatory nickname Wagon Wheel Joe, due to his common strategy of using props and scenery on the set to add detail and interest to a composition, uh, which, because he initially made mostly westerns, would often mean just taking, like, a wagon wheel and, like, putting it prominently in the frame somewhere. Oh, (laughs) I think that's a trope in westerns. Following his retirement in the mid-1960s, Lewis became a darling of auteur theory critics, Uh, particularly praised for his film noirs of the 1940s and 50s, such as Gun Crazy, which is probably his most acclaimed film and considered to be an influence on later movies like Bonnie and Clyde and Badlands. Cool. For, to talk a bit about other people in the cast, uh, the character of Lugosi's daughter is played by Polly Ann Young, who was the older sister of famous actress Loretta Young, as well as actress Sally Blaine, who had appeared with Lugosi in Night of Terror. Yeah. She started acting at age nine in 1917, and Invisible Ghost was her last film before retiring from acting. Okay. Uh, I believe she was in her mid-30s at that point. Appearing in an unfortunately typical role as Lugosi's butler is African-American actor Clarence Muse. We've seen him before, haven't we? That's right. We've discussed Muse in past episodes. He was the coach driver in White Zombie, and he was also Lunch McLaren in Black Moon. We go into greater detail about Clarence Muse in the Black Moon episode, uh, which is episode 46, but it suffices to say that he was a very popular actor at the time, uh, capable of both serious roles in, say, like, African-American majority films, or 
he was also quite good at the kind of racist, darky humor that was typical at the time for African-American roles in white majority films. So kind of played both sides of that street. Yeah, he's been going for a while, though, because Black Moon is, like, 1934, mm-hmm. and now we're seven years later, so good for him. Yeah, he he was quite a well-known and popular African-American actor of this time period. Cool. Uh, which, you know, rare accomplishment for this time period. The role of Bela Lugosi's wife is played by Betty Compson, who was once quite a major movie star. She began in film at age 18 in 1915... And by 1920, she was so popular that she was able to start her own production company to get creative control over the movies that she appeared in. She was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actress for her role in The Barker, uh, losing to Mary Pickford in Coquette. She transitioned well into the sound era uh, with a string of hits in the early pre-code period. But the failure of 1931's comedy The Gay Diplomat signaled a nosedive for her career putting her largely in Poverty Row films until her retirement from film in 1948. That's too bad. Mm -hmm. But she had a pretty prolific career, so... Yeah, so she's kind of... A big deal? What she really is is someone who was kind of a big deal. Puts her kind of in the same category as Lugosi as being someone who's a bit of a has-been, and this is kind of where they're at now. Mm. Invisible Ghost was released on April 25th, 1941. It received a rave review from the L.A. Times. Oh, nice. Which called it, quote, head and shoulders above the average horror picture, end quote. And also said that Lugosi was, quote, superb in his work, end quote. Oh, nice. Cool. I don't think we've ever had such a glowing review for Poverty Row Picture. No. So how are we watching this? Well, uh, it might surprise you to learn that The Invisible Ghost is in the public domain. <laughs> There is actually a new Blu-ray of it from Kino, if you want Kino, to... Kino, always doing the best. Yeah, so if you want to see it in actual, like, good quality, uh, go get the Blu-ray, um, because all the online versions range from garbage to watchable. When I say watchable, that's, that's the version that we've linked to on the <laughs> Scream Scene YouTube playlist. Thank you for going through the weeds to find the watchable version for us. Yeah, but I mean, it, I've seen... So I haven't seen the Blu-ray yet. It, it really is brand new, like 2018 brand new. Oh, wow. Um, but I've seen some stills, like some screen caps from it. And it's like pretty astonishing, the difference between that and like any version of this movie on YouTube. Cool. Well, thanks to Ben's hard work... We have a watchable version on the Scream Scene YouTube playlist, which you can access at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. We are going to watch the film. You can watch along with us. And in the meantime, you will hear a brief musical interlude, and we will be back to discuss The Invisible Ghost from 1941, directed by Joseph H. Lewis. See you on the other side, everybody. back everyone to scream scene we just finished watching invisible ghost from 1941 directed by joseph h 
Lewis. Sarah, what did you think? I found this very interesting. I liked this movie a lot, Sarah. Yeah, I think it's it's good, and I have a lot of things to say about it. I mean, I think it's good for certain values of good in certain contexts. I think it's very good for a monogram picture. Yes, uh, it's very good for a poverty row picture. What it's really especially good for, in my opinion, is it's especially good for how bad the script is. The plot of this movie, the story of it, is absolutely bonkers. It makes very little sense and is just totally out to lunch in its sequence of events. Um, is it? But (laughs) the movie does a really good job of making it all, if not believable, at least like... If you can buy into the premise, everything follows to its relatively logical end. Yeah, I think the thing that, like, there's a lot of technical stuff that I thought was really well done about this movie that we can get into later, but I think the key thing about this movie, because, like, I think, honestly, the script is probably as bad as any Poverty Row movie script we've had, really, but the difference is this movie buys into its own script, like, which makes it a lot easier for an audience to buy into it. Like, the movie itself is taking its own premise seriously as opposed to treating it like garbage. Like, I don't, you don't get the feeling watching this that the people making the movie were like, ah, eh, this is a stupid movie anyway, so we don't really have to, you know, make this convincing, right? Definitely. But I will say, I think this script, while not a Pride of Frankenstein, Black Cat level of script, I don't think it's bad. I think it's clever in interesting ways. I think I want to want to sort of um, qualify what I mean when I say it's bad. I think this script is talking about interesting things and exploring interesting ideas and like has interesting things that it's doing. But I don't think it's very. Um, I think like it it for one thing like is a little bonkers and for another isn't like good in a technical sense. Like what I'm trying to say is. The writer of the script was, like, had some interesting stories to tell and ideas to get across, but as, like, a writer was not particularly skilled, okay. is what I'm trying to get at. So tell us what it's about. Yeah. Bela Lugosi plays Charles Kessler, who is rich because he has live-in servants. I don't think we ever learned what he did or does, but he has a butler named Evans, who's played by Clarence Muse, and he has a maid who's named Cecile, and she's, like, blonde and dressed in, like, you know, a Halloween French maid costume. Yeah. And he has a groundskeeper named Jules, and he also has his daughter who lives with him. Her name is Virginia. And tonight is Kessler's wedding anniversary. So Evans the butler is setting out the table for Mr. Kessler to have dinner with his wife. Problem... His wife left him for another man many years ago. She is... I get the feeling that's like three or four years ago. Uh, so I picked up seven from somewhere, but they might have just said several, which in my brain always translates to seven. Um, many years ago. Despite this fact, every year on his wedding anniversary, he like has dinner with her as if she's there when she's not. Later in the movie, we learn that he believes that one day she'll come back to him kind of harboring this hope that she'll see the error of her ways. So that's a little weird. But 
Then we, you know, we meet um, Ralph Dixon, who is a young, handsome, square-jawed man who is seeing Virginia. And, you know, that seems to be going very well. Uh, They go out on a date. Uh, She's in love. Maybe they'll get married. That all seems pretty good. When he's leaving, after dropping her off, he gets into a confrontation with the maid, Cecile. Turns out, they used to be an item, and she wants him back. And, like, she's, you know, real uh, pushy about it. And he, you know, he's with Virginia now, and, like, he outright says, uh, nothing's gonna stand in the way of my happiness, not even you. And this is overheard by Evans, the butler, as he's putting the car away. Meanwhile, Jules, the groundskeeper, has been, like, stealing food from the kitchen. And we find out that the reason he's been doing this is so he can take it to the shed and then take it to the, you know, cellar beneath the shed to feed it to Mrs. Kessler. Dun, dun, dun. Who, if I'm understanding what the movie's telling me correctly... She crazy. Well, yes, that's not in question, but... She left Mr. Kessler for apparently his best friend, and, like, when they went to drive away, like, basically that same day, he got into a car crash, he died, Jules found her, and she was, like, dazed and had amnesia and stuff from the crash, like, some brain damage from the crash, and rather than, like, call an ambulance and the hospital and be like, Mr. Kessler, like, your wife is half a block away in a wrecked car, he figures he's going to stick her in the cellar of the gardening shed and care for her until she's well enough again to see Mr. Kessler. And now it's been several years later and he hasn't told anyone and she is, is just... Not better. No, she's, she's out there. Her, she's, Mrs. Kessler is not home. She, she's, yeah, it's bad. So at... Various intervals. Like, the movie sort of presents it almost as if it's nightly, but, like, the way the story happens, it it can't be nightly. But sometimes, Mrs. Kessler leaves the shed, wanders out into the yard of the house. And when she does this, if Mr. Kessler happens to see her out the window, which, when she's outside, he's somehow drawn to the window, as if by some hypnotic force, um, if he sees her out the window and they, like, see each other, he suffers, like, a major psychotic break, uh, which supposedly is, like, motivated by Mrs. Kessler's idea that the reason she can't go home is that if she were to go home, he would kill her. He would kill anybody. Have you ever heard the phrase, blinded by rage? Yeah. This is like a trance. By Trent, right, sure. Yeah, it's it's a crime of passion if, like, by passion you mean hypnosis. Yeah. Um, so it turns out, and the way this is, like, brought up as a casual thing in the script is, is one of those, like, wait, what kind of moments, that there's just been murders happening around the Kessler home. Uh, specifically, like, they mentioned their chauffeur was killed, but, like, the implication is that there's been others, like, that... If you work on staff at the Kessler estate, you're going to get got. Like, there's a reason Cecile is the new maid. And somehow the police have not solved any of them. No one has any clue who's doing them. Because it seems like every time the police show up, they're, like, assuming the murderer is someone who isn't, like, one of the people who lives in the house. Which, 
Anyways. They encourage the Kesslers to leave the house as if that would solve it. As if the murders are happening here because of the house itself. Yeah, like the police seem to have the working theory that a murderer who is obsessed with this house is killing people. And if they all moved, it just wouldn't be a problem. Which is, the police in this movie are not great. So, it turns out that the person who's been committing the murders is Mr. Kessler, while he's been under this hypnotic trance that seeing his wife puts him into, where he suffers this psychotic break and then just wanders around the house until he finds someone, just the first person he kind of comes across. And then he takes off his house robe and just scoops it up over their head and just kind of holds it there until they suffocate and die, which... You know, I talked to Sarah about this while we were watching the movie. Feels like a very inefficient and kind of ridiculous method of murder. But then you have to remember that, like, the production code specifically, like, not only states that you can't have violent murders, but that you have to have murders that, like, can't really be replicated. Like, that, that whose methodologies, like, aren't actually usable. Yeah. Um, so, on this first occasion uh, that we see in the movie, Mr. Kessler wanders to Cecile's room. And strangles her. And it's a really um, effective scene. We get, you know, Lugosi coming right at the camera with the uh, thing. And he, like, scoops it over the camera. And everything goes black. And then there's, like, a kind of weird moment where he peeks out to, like, check that, like, she's dead. Slash, we're dead. Because we're her point of view. And then he scoops it over again. But what's really most effective is the next morning. When Evans the butler is like, hey, Cecile, like, you've slept in long enough. Goes to check on her. And... Her radio is still playing from, like, the night before when she was killed, and he opens the door, and she's just, like, sprawled out over the side of the bed like a crime scene photo, and the radio's just kind of playing in the background like an excerpt, like a Jane, like a, the 1940s equivalent of a Jane Fonda workout video, but, like, over the radio, and it's just, like, a really eerie, yeah, effective juxtaposition. Yeah, it was really good. So, because... Ralph had this prior relationship with Cecile, and they were having this dispute, and Evans overheard, like, them threatening each other. Now the prime suspect is Ralph. And, you know, we of course know that Ralph would never do such a thing, but he gets arrested, goes to trial, goes to jail, the governor doesn't pardon him, they walk him to be executed, and then he dies. Yeah, it's a very well-executed montage. Also, we should mention that the ghostie does not remember committing these murders. Yeah, sorry. I, I thought that was kind of implied in these types of movies, but Sometimes it's a good it's thing good to, to bring specific. up. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so he's like, we will fight to like get you off the hook here and like Yeah, it's 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 not really like a split personality disorder type deal, but, but no, like, functionally in the narrative it's the same kind of deal. Yeah, but like when someone's under hypnosis, it's always like they don't remember Mm -hmm. what they do, right? So it, it's part of that. Yeah, I just mean to say that, like, you could easily compare this to movies that have split personality killers in them. It's just that Lugosi's murderous side doesn't really have, like, a distinct personality. Mm. So, yeah, I personally found Ralph dying to be quite shocking because he's the, like, square-jawed romantic lead. And, yeah, they don't save him. He just dies. So that was pretty ballsy, in my opinion. Yeah. The next crazy fucking thing that happens is, like, it's some time later, presumably, and the doorbell rings, and Evans opens it, and who should be 
beyond the door, but Ralph, but with, like, Mr. Fantastic-style Grey in his sideburns, because this isn't Ralph, this is Paul, Ralph's twin brother, who's been in South America this whole time. They don't say twin, and he's his older brother. Really? That's why he has Grey in his hair. I guess. I thought the gray was just so we could tell the difference. The reason why I assumed twin, you have to understand, listeners... Is because it's played by the same actor. Yep. Which is a great way to uh, lower costs by just hiring the same actor to play both parts. Yep. And have these neat moments because Evans is like, what? Yeah, everyone kind of gets to have a moment where they freak out seeing this guy for the first time. Paul has come to the Kessler's house because he thinks there was something kind of screwy with this idea that his brother was a murderer and, you know, wants to see who really did the killings and so on. And the Kesslers are totally on that side. So they put him up for the night in the house. And right on cue, Mrs. Kessler comes up out of the shed, sees Mr. Kessler in the window. He goes into murder mode. And this time he kills Jules, the groundskeeper. Things get, like, a little weird at this point, because, like, it's the exact same method of murder as all the earlier ones. So the police, when they show up this time, and, like, these cops, like, this is the only house where murders happen. Like, you just, they, they're so bad at their jobs. But they show up, and it's like, oh, well, who could have done this? Oh, the new guy who's new here? and looks exactly like the guy we just sent to, like, execution for these murders. So they immediately kind of, like, suspect Paul, but that kind of goes away rather quickly. Meanwhile, the coroner calls Kessler in to see the groundskeeper's body, and the groundskeeper's wife is there, who does know about Mrs. Kessler, by the way, in the shed, but that never really comes up or is important. Well, conversations are cut short. Because she goes to identify the body, and she screams because Jules is still alive. <laughs> Barely. But he soon dies after when Mr. Kessler goes in and is like, Please tell me who killed you. And, <laughs> and the groundskeeper looks up and he's like, because yeah, it's him, it, it's, and he dies then. It's, this is an example of like what I mean when I say, like, this movie is good, but the script is kind of bad. Because it's a really effectively like eerie, weird, off-putting, unsettling scene. But in terms of like what it accomplishes story-wise, it's a complete cul-de-sac. He was dead, he wakes up just long enough to do absolutely nothing, and then dies again. So, we continue on in the household, and... The Kesslers have a new chef, which... Marie. They, they explicitly put some dialogue in the script to explain that she doesn't read the newspapers, because you know... How else you... would you hire someone to work in your murder household? <laughs> exactly. So you kind of think that Marie's going to get it next. Instead, what happens is Mr. Kessler, you know, has one of his psychotic breaks. He seems to consider killing Paul, but then he makes a beeline into Virginia's room where she's sleeping because she's the young female character in this movie and we have to threaten her at least once. Otherwise, I think, like, the union will come take away our licenses to make horror movies. I, I'm not exactly sure. But Kessler does not kill his own child because there's a strike of lightning that just sort of snaps him out of it. He goes back downstairs and... And this alerts Paul that something's up. 
And, you know, he asks Mr. Kessel, like, hey, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, everything's fine. So Paul goes back to bed. The next morning, they discover that the portrait of Mrs. Kessler that hangs on the wall has been defaced. And this is pretty clever because, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, the actress who plays Mrs. Kessler was once, like, a very famous silent movie actress. So, like, they could easily have, like, gotten access to, like, a nice picture of her from back in the day. So everyone's like, oh, who could have done this? And, you know... Wait, where's Marie? Yeah. So, you know, Mr. Kessler kind of figures, like, oh, there must have been another murder. So they all go around looking for Marie, and it turns out she's she's totally fine. She was just at the store buying groceries. So then the cops enter the house, and Lugosi is... Or Mr. Kessler is like, hey, someone defaced my wife's painting. If you can figure out who did that, you'll figure out who the murderer is. And Paul is real in on this theory that, like, someone who would deface a painting, like, must be insane, ergo the murderer must be insane. And, like, he's not wrong, but that is, that's a wild train of thought. Yeah, there's some leaps there. That's that's some Batman 66-ass, like, (laughs) C for Catwoman. Then Paul finds a strand of fabric in the painting. So this strand of fabric, they figure out, matches Mr. Kessler's house robe the thing he's been using to strangle everyone. And the police, the main detective, finds it in Evan's room. So now Evans is the suspect. And the thing that really, like... Despite it being like, oh yeah, Evans just mends my clothes yeah, when Mr. he sees that they're ripped. Yeah, Mr. Kessler feels it's totally natural that, like, this robe would be in Evan's room. It makes total sense. The thing that really got me in this scene was the way that, like, they explicitly describe it as he used the robe on the painting. Like, as if the thing, like, because I'm, like, I get the idea because the robe's the murder weapon and, you know, you can understand what the true motivation of the murders is supposed to be and he attacks the painting when he's in this thing. But I'm just trying to imagine in my head this scene of Bela Lugosi, like, thwapping this robe against a painting. So... They've come to the conclusion that the murderer is insane because portrait defacing. And if they think Evans might be the murderer, let's subject Evans to a sanity test and we'll figure out if Evans is insane, ergo, he's the murderer or not. And I do appreciate this point, and it's Paul that brings it up because he feels that because his brother was executed because of circumstantial evidence, he wants whoever happens to be the killer to have, like, actual evidence behind it. So he's willing to be like, don't just fucking arrest Evans. Let's do this psychology test or whatever. Um, So it it felt like, yeah, let's not just have the police just, you know, ah, cool, I'll just arrest the first person I see type deal. You really get the feeling like this detective's clearance rate is, like, very bad this year. Because his attitude... Oh, yeah, look at all the murders that they haven't solved. Because <laughs> his attitude towards these murders is basically, hmm, a lot of dead people. Well, there's absolutely no way this can be solved until there's, like, the slightest hint of a suspect. And then he's like, you're under arrest and definitely the murderer. Like, there's just no investigation yes. process at all. So, yeah, so they bring in the psychiatrist. And Kessler, Paul, Evans, the detective, and the psychiatrist are all in a room... At this point in the story, Virginia gets completely, basically, cut out of the movie because Kessler and Paul, like, insist on her going to her room during this, and that's kind of it for her for the rest of the movie. We earlier mentioned how the groundskeeper was giving Mrs. Kessler food. With him dead, 
she's now been sneaking into the house to just sort of steal food. That sort of gets mentioned as a little mystery earlier when the cook's like, I can't figure out who's stealing all the food. Um, on one of the occasions where she comes in to do this, she's spotted by the cops who are watching the house. They don't really know what's going on with her, but she's very clearly like a wandering crazy woman. So they're going to take her upstairs to, you know, the boss to be like, hey, who's this and what do we do with her? So when they do, you know, she sees Kessler and Kessler sees her and she's like, I'm dead. Because that's what she believes. Mrs. Kessler believes she's dead. And, you know, I couldn't come home or you'd kill me. You'd kill anyone. So then Mr. Kessler goes into his psychotic fugue state and starts... Luckily, right in front of the psychologist. Yes. And starts Boris Karloff walking out the door. (laughs) And, like, down the hall and away from everyone. And they're, like, following him. Like, okay, well, now we know it's Kessler. Let's see where he goes. And he just turns around and attacks the the detective and they're struggling and Virginia pokes her head out of her door and Paul's like, no, 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 go back in your room and don't come out for the rest of the movie. And he's going to kill this detective. Meanwhile, the other police take Mrs. Kessler into another room just to kind of get her away from the scene. And for reasons, she falls over dead. And at the moment she dies, Mr. Kessler snaps out of his psychosis and lets go of the detective. He's like, oh my god, like, what happened? And they're like, well, we caught the murderer. And he's like, it was Evans, right? And they're like, no, it was you. And he's like, oh no, you know, the horror. And then they arrest him and take him away, and that's the end. Oh, he does stop at the defaced painting on his way downstairs to say that, I knew you would come back to me one day, my darling. Uh, and then they take him away at the end. So as you can tell from that long synopsis. There's a lot in this movie. Yeah, it's it's got a lot of moving pieces um, that are such that, like, sometimes they work and sometimes things, I think, just get forgotten about or, or left by the wayside occasionally. But what I kind of want to call attention to is everything kind of needed to be mentioned mm-hmm. in order for us explaining the story to you in order for that to kind of make sense. Yes. It's not a case of us being like, and then they ran through the house for 30 minutes, and then at the end they pulled the mask off and it was Mr. McBucket. Yeah, you need you need every part of the puzzle, even if the puzzle itself is very bizarre. Yeah, but like the puzzle pieces are fairly big. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, you know, a little kid puzzle where like the puzzle pieces are like huge, so it's easy for them. But the design is a kaleidoscope, so you're like... A little challenged. (laughs) Um, And yeah, just the reason why I want to kind of like bring this up, this is kind of where I think the script is a little clever. Because obviously all of these things are padding for time because the movie's just like barely an hour. Mm -hmm. We need to like stretch it out a little bit. That's why Jules wakes up. That's why we stop and bring in the psychologist. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we do all these things. But... Typically, what we've seen in especially Poverty Row films is that they either drag things out by, like, crushing the pacing and making mm-hmm. it go incredibly slow, 
or what they do to pad things out is repeat things. Like there was one movie where we had like three or four spinning newspapers coming at us. Yeah, there's a lot of um, cyclical dialogue in these kind of movies, which like this is an exaggeration, but it's a lot of people being like, hello, how are you? I'm good, and you? I'm fine, thank you. And the weather today? Yes, it's fine. And it's like, we're watching a movie. We, we're, we don't need to be seeing inane small talk, but inane small talk helps pad out time. Here, it's pads it out by, like, almost throwing, like, everything at the wall and just seeing what sticks. Well, and everything's justified, too. Like, the, the, like I said, the, the thing with Jules waking up doesn't do anything for the story, but it's all set up properly. He gets the call, he goes to the corner, and they find an effective use of it in the movie that isn't story-driven by having it just be another kind of creepy incident to keep the audience on their toes, right? Yeah. I think the fact that Ralph and Paul exist, right. as they are, is a perfect example. We get the dread and imagery of Ralph walking to the electric chair and the dreaded phone call that Lugosi gets of like, ah, it, it, it happened, we didn't stop it in time. That, that sucks. But we still need to have that square-jawed hero, and yeah. it ain't going to be the police chief, so we bring the same actor back in as Paul. Like, it's great. It's, like, clever, and it it, it manages to, like, pad out the timing so you can you basically get to have your cake and eat it, too. Yeah, that's absolutely what it is. Like, they, they get to do something really cool and different, which is kill off the hero before he gets to do anything, which is super shocking. And then, as you say, yeah then they get to just replace him with basically exactly the same person. And it does accomplish some padding out for timing, because then you have to reintroduce that character to everyone, but it feels motivated because they don't know him, and you get to do cool character things with like them being shocked at his appearance. And so it's, it's stuff where like it's all the same kinds of flaws that you see in other Poverty Row films, but they're being covered for and motivated a lot better than they usually are so that they all feel kind of reasonable. Because, yeah, like, I feel like in a reasonable movie, Ralph would die for your big shocker, and then you'd just introduce, like, a competent detective in the second half of the movie. But as you say, it's a cheap movie. We can't afford another actor. So, like, it's a really cool way to just do these things. Yeah. Kind of to that point, another way you could do it is to have two square-jawed heroes and have one of them die off and just have them both introduced at the beginning of the movie. Sure. Right? In that kind of old dark house style of just, like, a ton of people in here. Right. That's, like, it's a very common thing with these cheap movies of just having kind of too many characters. Yes. And what I found very interesting with this movie is... Every character is serving a purpose. Yeah. And that was very refreshing. They either serve a purpose in the story, or they get killed. Which is, like, what you're supposed to do with excess characters. <laughs> right? Like, it was so nice to be in a movie where it's like, yeah, there's ten people in the cast, and it's a horror movie, and by the end, most of them are dead, as opposed to all ten of them are still fucking here, and we unmasked Mr. McGillicuddy, right? Like, the thing about the murders, too, that I want to bring up, one of the things that makes this movie work, and I think it's a little bit of a... This is like a microcosm for me of the whole movie. And I brought it up during the plot synopsis, but it happens every time there's a murder. The deaths have weight. Yes. You know, like, like 
Evans when he finds Jewel's body. It's this shot where he... I think he finds every single one. (laughs) Yeah, Evans has a bad time in this movie. (laughs) Um, He walks into the kitchen... And he's just like, you know, do-do-do, going about my day. And then we, we don't see Jules' body. We see Evan stop and look down. And then there's a long camera tilt down to the dead body of Jules on the floor. And it's, you know, it's held and it's given a bit of time so it has some weight. And to me that represents this whole movie. It's the same schlocky shit, but if you fucking do it as if it's real and, you know, the characters are real people with real psychology and react to things in reasonable ways, it suddenly feels like a fucking movie Mm -hmm. and not just a waste of time where it's like, ah, the skipper's dead. Well, moving on with our lives. Yeah, just compare specifically Evans, I guess, because he's the one that finds the bodies, but um, compare Evans' reactions to the deaths to... Horror Island? Horror Island, exactly. Like, even when the main character's cousin is dead in a fucking suit of armor on Horror Island, it's like, huh, George is in the suit of armor. That's weird. Well, time to find the treasure. Yeah, you you get the sense that, like, at the end of the movie, you know, the, the cops who arrive at the end are, like, tallying up the bodies, and they're like, hey, and isn't your cousin dead, too? And the hero's like, who? There's no weight to it at all, and it makes such a big difference to have that. Yeah, like... The only death in this movie that doesn't have weight to it, and we didn't even mention it, is the cop that had been watching the house. They say his name, I don't remember it, and he he just, like, he's hiding behind the curtain. You pull it, and he falls over like Claudius in Hamlet, and, like, they're like, oh, shit. But then, like, that's, that's as much weight that that one gets. But that one is effective because it's the result of a fake-out. Exactly. Right? Like, it's the same thing with, like, you know... Either the people are important to the plot or they die. The only person who isn't important to the plot and stays alive is Marie, the cook. But that's because she's part of this, like, fake-out. Which, again, shows a level of, like, care and attention going into this movie that you don't normally see. Because, like, to even just do a fake-out like that, you have to understand how, like, suspense works. And you also have to have a realization that your movie's really repetitive. A lot of cheap poverty row movies are repetitive. The, you know, you, you start seeing the same kind of scenes over and over. Especially when it's a movie like this with, like, multiple murders in it. You're like, oh, here goes the murder again. And that kind of happens here, too, where it's like, yeah, here's Mrs. Kessler coming out. No, here's the scene at the window or whatever. But this movie's clever enough to realize that, like, once you've done that a couple times, you can subvert the expectation and do something different with it on the next time and surprise people. As opposed to just being boring. Yeah. Yeah, so I I really enjoyed this. One thing that I thought was uncanny is there can only be one woman in a scene at a time unless (laughs) it's Cecile and Virginia, and that's because they're fighting over a man. (laughs) I think it's a really unique movie because, you know, I can't off the top of my head think of another example of a movie where, like, on paper the story is as stupid as this story. Or, like, maybe stupid's the wrong word, but, like, the story is as just bizarre and nuts as this. Like, when you when you sit down and you say it, like, it's, 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 it's what? What is going on? So, but, like, I can't think of another movie where the story is like that, but when you watch the movie, it all works as well as this does. 
So, then, this transitions nicely into something that I am pleasantly surprised about with this movie. Okay. It felt strangely gothic. Yes, I would agree with that. I, I, I feel like I know where you're going with this. So it has very mysterious murders. There's the... There seems to be a level of reasoning that the bad things are happening in the house because of the house itself, which mm-hmm. is kind of like a House of Usher type deal. Very gothic trope. Yeah. Um, the reason they're staying in the house is sentimentality. Okay, the literal huge-ass painting yeah. of the, like missing person, dead yeah. wife, whatever. And, like, the symbolism of, like, killing the painting is killing the wife and so on. Yeah. Um, also, she may not be in the attic, but there sure is a mad woman in the basement. Yeah, and there's, you know, it's funny, um, the title doesn't seem to really mean anything. In a way, like, if there's a ghost in this movie, it's metaphorical. Yes. Um, because Mrs. Kessler's the ghost, right? Like, this, like, you're totally right about comparing this to the gothic genre, because, like, I feel like if this was a traditional 19th century gothic movie, Mrs. Kessler would be literally a ghost, right? Mm-hmm. Like, a spirit who wanders the grounds and, you know, is able to influence the people inside to do violence, right? And in this movie, it's like, well, no, it's it's modern-day America, so, like, we're not going to do, like, American movies never do ghosts. They never do straight-up ghosts. So instead, she's this real person who's just kind of wandering the grounds because she has this brain damage. I feel like in one way that hurts it, because when you literalize the ghost to being a real person, I feel like the weird, psychic, she's commanding him to do murders weirdly doesn't work as well as it would be as if you um, admitted to the supernatural elements. But the visuals are certainly there, because they dress her in white, they have her out, you know, on the lawn, in the rain... All of that kind of stuff. Like, it's it's definitely operating in that mold. I will just point out that she does not need to be literally a ghost. Because, mm-hmm. like, Jane Eyre, it's not a ghost. It's yeah. a, a literal person in an attic. Right. But the thing about gothic horror and gothic genre writ large is how overwhelming emotions mm-hmm. can physically affect you. Mm-hmm. So, my proposition, my... Thesis? My thesis! Because these overwhelming emotions, like, act physically on people, that would explain the tie between Mrs. Kessler and Mr. Kessler. Both in the sense of Mr. Kessler having kind of, like, an awareness when Mrs. Kessler is near. When he sees her, he goes through this range of emotions of, like... My wife, to <laughs> to intense rage, um, and it's that rage that puts him into the trance. But so it's like interesting. It's like this neat like awareness that she's near because he still does love her and wants her to come back. But this unbridled rage that like overtakes him and causes him to go into this trance. And furthermore, it explains why when she dies. His trance ends. You know, this kind of supernatural connection there. So, like, I I truly do think that this movie is inspired by the gothic genre mm-hmm. in, on these many levels. Mm-hmm. I will say 
that the reason I'm specifying inspired rather than falling into the genre, and, and like that's a weird sure. delineation no, I'm, I'm putting yeah, in. Yeah, for sure. Because like it's not. There's no American Gothic tradition that I would put this into. Right. Because you have, like, Victorian Gothic. Mm-hmm. And, mo- like, all of this is in literature that I'm specifying, but Victorian Gothic, Dracula, Frankenstein, that kind of deal. Mm-hmm. And then post-Victorian, you have New Gothic, which is more 50s, 60s, 70s, so not yet. You have the Southern Gothic, for specifically America, and that's more like Flannery O'Connor, William Faulkner. What would you say about, like, a novel like Rebecca? Oh, yeah, that's gothic. Right, but, like, would that not then be an American gothic? Like, where would you categorize in that in these categor- categories, you know? I'm not really sure, because, like, the only specifically American gothic that you have is southern gothic, and that's a very specific, like, southern United States. So that's why I'm, I'm not really sure whether to put, like, I, I, I hesitate to put this into an actual genre category like Mm -hmm. that yeah i'm just trying to think like is there a tradition that we're just not aware of also rebecca is very much just like a remake of jane eyre yes modernized absolutely i'm just i'm trying to remember at the off the top of my head i can't remember if the author is american or british and i can't remember if it's set in america or britain all i know is in the movie the lead actress is american and the lead actor is British, so I can't... So and the director... Either way. And the director's British, and the producer's American, so I just can't remember. Yeah, the reason I, like, bring up the fact that it's remaking Jane Eyre is that isn't necessarily, like, creating a new form of the genre, oh, you know? Oh, sure. Okay, I get what you're saying, then. It's, yeah, it's yeah. falling under that Like, tradition. Crimson Peak. Crimson Peak, I would put under, like... Victorian Gothic. Right, yeah, okay. I get what you're saying. Yeah, Yeah. okay, cool, thanks. I'm glad that this is kind of making sense. Um, But anyways, all of this is to say that, like, while I see where you're coming from for this script not having a lot of, like, authorial skill, does that make sense? You said that, like, the writer's bad, but the script is good. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I haven't had... I feel like I still haven't articulated what I'm trying to say is bad about the script well, mm. um, and that's partially because you seem to be so enamored with it that I... I <laughs> you hesitate? Yeah. Um, I wanted you to be able to get through what you liked about it first, rather sure. than just be a dick about things. <laughs> Thank you for not being just a dick about things. Gothic horror is just my jam. Like, I, as soon as I see it, I'm just like, yes! Like, I'm just super into it. That being said, like, I recognize that, like, like if this was, like, an A picture from MGM, probably would have been able to, like, pull this off in a way where it wouldn't feel clunky like it does at times. While the script is clunky, I think we should still acknowledge the talent and cleverness behind it. See, you know, I'm trying to make this clear. I don't think this is a bad movie. Yeah. I think this movie's really good. I think this movie pulled off a lot of really good stuff. I think the story is nuts because you're in- entirely right. Like, all of the things that are weird about this story make sense in the context of gothic tropes. The problem is, it's 1941, and we haven't really been seeing those tropes in the genre for a long time now. Yeah. Um, at least not in these direct traditional forms. I'm 
make, I'm going to make a, an assumption here. I'm going to, you know, propose a theory because Helen Martin, who wrote this script, you know, she didn't write anything else. Um, she was an actress and it feels to me, you know, we don't get a lot of, um, at least in, in Hollywood, we haven't seen a lot of women writing horror, but it feels like someone saying to her, write a horror movie and her coming to it with like her knowledge of the genre being stuff like, you know, your Jane Eyre's and your other Gothic novels and just going, you know, in her mind, oh, that's what horror is, being told, hey, it has to be set modern because we've got $20 to make this movie. It's not going to be a period piece and going cool and just writing that. And I think why the movie feels so crazy when you watch it is because it's those gothic tropes taken out of that context, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, if you're in a big spooky house, it's much easier to believe that there's like a ghost versus a house in suburban America. Yeah, I feel like the other thing is like things like Jules the groundskeeper keeping the crazy wife like locked away in a cellar on the grounds like that makes sense when it's like here's our manor house in old england and it's you know there's nothing around for miles and hospitals haven't been invented yet and (laughs) doctors seriously you know like if it's 1817 there's no such thing you know what's a doctor gonna do like blah 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 like the best thing to do is to just keep her and care for you best you can when you're in 1941 America and it's like, oh yeah, she was in a car crash and I just decided not to call a doctor. That's fucking weird. Yeah. Or, or, you know, even the thing of like the, the psychic link between them. Like to me, that link is weird just because the movie never like addresses it. Like it's there and it's happening, but there's no dialogue ever talking about like what the hell this is. So, The problem I have with a movie like this is when you put everything into a modern, realistic setting where there, you know, there isn't any ghosts and it's the real world, seemingly, it gets weird if you have, like, arbitrary things that are supernatural, right? Mm -hmm. Like, when your methods of murder are (laughs) strangled with bathrobe, but you still, and, like, there are no ghosts, but you still have psychic connections, like, it's, it's like, a little weird. And I I think the thing that the script doesn't do a good enough job of is, you know, is Lugosi um, experiencing, like, a mental break in, like, terms of his, you know, becoming psychotic at the sight of his wife, or is it something supernatural? And I feel like you can read it as psychotic right up until the end, where she dies, and then it's like, well, no, that had to be some sort of psychic link then. And where I say that the script is... um, a little sloppy it's on things like why does she die at that exact moment like again that's something where if you were in a gothic novel it could be like she died of a broken heart or whatever and that's just totally fine but when you're in like a realistic seeming america the idea of like she killed over dead because the plot ended is starts to feel sloppy <laughs> instead of you know Mysterious. in tune, yeah or in tune with genre conventions right yeah. But I think, um, for me, the number one thing about the story that is, like, again, to drive this point home, this movie does a really good job of paving over the problems it has by having a director who gives a shit. Because if if you had, I think, this same script, even with all these elements you really like, and it was being directed by fucking Frank Strayer, 
Yeah, it, it would not have worked. It would be trash. Like, this is better directed, I think, than any Poverty Row film we've seen on the list so far. It's got lighting and camera movement and framing. It's, you know, if anything is working to make the gothic tropes work, it's the fact that the director is trying to create an atmosphere as opposed to just being like, yeah, flood the set with light so that we don't have to do more than one setup and fit the camera way back so we can see everyone all at once in one shot and just let it roll until they've said the whole script and then we'll all go home. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, it's very stylish. It's great. Um, will we be seeing more horror from this director? I think he maybe did one other horror movie, um, but I know that, like, from, you know, before this he did mostly westerns, and after this he did mostly film noir, which I can totally see going from this. The other thing that he does really well that makes this movie work is directing the actors to give real performances. Um, Like Clarence Muse, for example, is understated in a role that could have easily been played as clownish. Um, Betty Compson absolutely sells what would be like an inane role for an actor to play if you didn't have either an actress of her talent or a director who cared. Because, you know, if you put the amount of effort into this that you see in other Poverty Row movies, it's like, okay, well, let's just get an old woman and tell her that her role is to wander around the set looking confused that could have gotten really bad really fast. And even the whole idea that she's is convinced that she's dead and been weirdly, like, amnesia crazy in a cellar for years, like, that's a hard pill to swallow if you don't have an actress who can sell that and make it feel believable. And she does, right? And Lugosi, like, Lugosi gets to play a very different kind of part, I feel, than he normally does, because in this movie, his kindly nature isn't like a front, right? He's a genuinely good man who just has these psychotic breaks that are actually very tragic at the end of the movie, you know? Yeah. Even uh, John McGuire manages to make playing his own fucking brother not totally stupid. Yeah, he actually (laughs) makes it feel like a different kind of character. Yeah. Like Um, a different flavor of uh, square-jawed hero. Yeah, for sure. He's, at the start of the movie, he's playing, like, Johnny Storm, and then when he's Paul, he's playing Reed Richards. <laughs> I'm, sure. <laughs> but, like, my one disappointment with this movie, other than, I'm just, I, I can't take the murder method seriously, is Polly Ann Young gets less to, gets less and less to do as the movie goes on. I think the biggest missed opportunity in terms of the story of this movie is that when it's time for the climax, she gets stuffed into her bedroom and locked away, and we literally, we never see her again. I would have loved to see her see her mother before she died. Be present when her dad turns. Yeah, have a reaction, because she could have had a really powerful tragedy to be reacting to, because at the end of the day, like, the tragedy of this movie... Um, which is also like the horror of this movie, is this family that's been torn apart by this utterly bizarre series of events, right? Where, you know, again, it's, my mom left my dad, and then immediately after got into a car crash, and now she wanders around our house, even though we all think she's still off with whoever she left my dad for, and when my dad sees her wandering in the house, he becomes a murderer. Like, that's the plot. That's weird. And... 
the problem with the ending, the only problem is, like, the movie decides it's going to focus on Lugosi's horror at recognizing he's the murderer. But if you can imagine, you know, Virginia getting to see her mom, getting to see her mom die, getting to see her dad be the murderer, realizing he's the murderer, her realizing he's the murderer, seeing the cops lead him off. You know, if that movie had ended with her wailing and crying on the stairs, for example, right, at the horror of it all, that's a fucking ending. Because the problem is, like, Paul and Detective Idiot and all the other miscellaneous characters, they don't care. Yeah. Like, the person who would actually care about my mom was secretly alive but crazy this whole time and making my dad go crazy while doing so is Virginia. She's the one who actually has got skin in the game, right? And she's not allowed to cash in at the end of the movie. So that's, that's my biggest issue with this film. I would 100% agree. So, would you like to rank this? Yes. Um, let's, let's do some ranking. Whereabouts were you looking for Invisible Ghost? Um, so as you can tell, I really like this movie. Mm-hmm. But I, I wanted to try to look at where to rank this by tabling my extreme love of gothic. Sure, like trying to correct for bias? Exactly, yeah. So, I kind of came down to Mark of the Vampire, another Lugosi flick, 1935 by Todd Browning. That's the one where um, they aren't actually vampires. Mm -hmm. I felt that this movie is 100% better than that. So, my range is above 39. (laughs) Um, but really, like, I don't know, I, I had a real hard time trying, I'd never know whether to, like, try to correct for bias or, or what. Obviously, I don't think that this movie should go in the top ten. I think it has, like, neat things to think about between this and Fall of the House of Usher, but in terms of technical skill, Usher probably goes above that. Um, so I'm curious what your range was. So I feel like... If we try to correct for our own biases too much, you know, it. I think we, we end up with problems. Because I feel like because it's you and me both coming up with a range and then compromising, we are the correction to the other person's bias, right? Sure. Um, but I see your point. So my range for this movie is very large. My first immediate conclusion watching the movie was that I think this is the best movie from a Poverty Row studio that we've seen so far. So our highest ranked Poverty Row movie otherwise is The Vampire Bat at number 47. Mm. So that's my floor. It's definitely better than The Vampire Bat. And then I worked my way up. Our highest ranked independent film from Hollywood, not necessarily Poverty Row, but not a studio picture either, is White Zombie at number 30. And I wanted to discuss, maybe entertain the idea that this is better than that, which I recognize will be blasphemous to some people because I know White Zombie is a big cult classic. So that's my range, is between 30 and 47. I I am up for discussion about it going anywhere in there, which is, I recognize, a very wide swath. Oof. So this will be tough. Well, White Zombie is a Lugosi picture. Mm Mm-hmm. How do we feel about how he is in that film versus this film? Because I will say, there were a couple times 
where Lugosi just kind of was saying the lines step by step. He was still acting, 100%, but he was like, I say this line, and then I say this line, and not necessarily waiting for the person's response. So comparing him in this to White Zombie is is an interesting contrast for me to think about, because on the one hand, this movie gives him something different to play than Just Do Dracula Again, which is what White Zombie's doing, right? White Zombie's like, hey, Just Do Dracula Again. Flip side, anyone could have been this character in Invisible Ghost. Lugosi's good at it, but it could have been anyone. This could have been Karloff. This could have been anyone. Um, Lugosi doesn't bring any Lugosi to it. You know, when you see Bela Lugosi, you kind of want to see him do the Lugosi thing. And he brings it to White Zombie, right? He brings that charisma, that screen presence, that panache, all the stuff that makes you like watching Bela Lugosi was in that movie and wasn't really here. So, you know, how much points do you give for the fact that the Halperins were just like, hey, repeat your last movie, which for an actor kind of sucks, versus how much you give to, as an audience, like, you know, how much you enjoyed seeing him. I think, like, I kind of lean towards White Zombie being better than this. Certainly, I think anything above that is. But, you know, I wanted to entertain the idea that this could go potentially that high. To be fair, like, your your kind of spot that you picked out is within my range. Totally. Yeah, that's why I'm looking in your range. Because I, like, the thing that's above White Zombie is Orlok's Hand, and we have a very comparable scene, mm. and Orlok's Hand does it better, mainly because, like, that's the, what they focus on. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So, totally with you that this, if you feel White Zombie is better um, as a whole... Yeah. then um, I'm fine with, like, looking between White Zombie and Mark of the Vampire. Well, then you have, you know, The Raven directly below, which is another Lugosi movie. And, again, this movie has, I think, a better horror story. Um, and, than and just, like, like it vaguely inspired by Poe. Well, not even. Like, The Raven, the movie, was part of that string of... It's a love triangle between a young guy and a young girl and an old mad scientist that we saw, like, five of in a row. Yeah. And... But, like, Lugosi in it, yeah. his whole character is, like, trying to recreate Poe stuff. Yeah, and there's a lot of fun to be had in The Raven with Lugosi's relationship with Karloff's character in that movie, for sure. I think The Raven might be more fun to watch than this. But again, I think the thing that I come back to in this movie is that the murders are played straight mm. right that like there are there is actually some comic relief in this movie and it is actually funny because it's all very understated it's all um you know sort of like uh, the, the best example i can think of off the top of my head is when they think that evans you know might be the murderer and he's standing with like a police officer in the kitchen or something and the cop asks him, like, some question, like, where were you on the night of this, that, or the other thing? And Evans goes like, oh, have you had coffee yet? And he's like, no. And he's like, oh, all right, well, like, you know, and he sits down and Evans starts serving him coffee just because, like, he's the butler and that's what he does. Like, just little things like that. Or Evans, like, <laughs> going out of his way not to tell the cook that people get 
murdered here all the time and stuff like that. Yeah, when she says that she doesn't read the newspapers, he says, like, outright, like, well, no use telling you now. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, to me, that's a lot funnier than the kind of, like, Scooby-Doo-esque, like, I'm so scared kind of thing that you could be doing with a character like that, right? Yeah. Um, like, the Raven was very fun to watch Lugosi in it, and it had Lugosi being Lugosi, but it also was like, the story itself felt very tired, overused. The other thing about the Raven was there was a lot of unnecessary characters, because the story was really about Lugosi and the young girl and her boyfriend and Karloff and the dad. But there was also like 18 other people who got invited to the house that night who do comic relief shit. Whereas this movie, you know, uses its cast better. So do we want to say above the raven, below white zombie? Yes. Okay, I'm happy with that. Mostly because it means I get to rank something above the man with nine lives, so. Oh, I'm so happy this is so high. All right, cool. So coming into the list at number 31, Invisible Ghost from 1941, directed by Joseph H. Lewis. A rare victory for a monogram film, especially because the reputation that has come to me of Lugosi's monogram nine is not good. So this was um, a, a, a great little surprise. Well, it's all downhill from here. Yeah. You can see this list by going to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can see links to other films that we've mentioned today, um, as well as find an appeals box. If you would like to contest the ranking of this film or any others, just send us a note there. You can also email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or just yell at us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream- I will only accept yells if they are in GIF form. Fair. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. If you enjoy the show, you can help us out by leaving a rating or a review or a upvote or a like or whatever. Those... Upvote? Are we on Reddit? I don't think so. Whatever those services allow for you to show your appreciation, because the internet's run by algorithms. So the more shares and likes and ratings and reviews we get, the better hope we have of other people finding the show. The um, real horror is trying to navigate those algorithms, and they don't make any sense. And they change every three months. So um, another way you can help us <laughs> out that doesn't rely on the mathematical whims of our Silicon Valley overlords is by telling people directly, whether that's on social media like Twitter or Tumblr or Facebook or uh, in Meet Space over, you know, a cup of coffee or something. Hey, this is a cool show. A more direct and fiscal way that you can support uh, the show is by heading over to patreon.com slash podcast. There, you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. At the $5 tier, however, you can get access to weekly bonus audio. At the $10 level, you can get access to monthly horror short fiction written by me. Also, when you sign up, you'll get access to all of the past content, including the amazing stuff we put together for October 2018. So check it out. That includes electronic music tracks by chart-topping electronic music artist Stegoceras, aka Sarah. They were some really good Halloween music tracks, Sarah. I really liked them. Aw, thanks. 
So that's patreon.com slash podcast. And if we hit our first goal on Patreon, we'll start doing bonus episodes every month, one bonus episode a month, on horror-adjacent films, which then we might take a look at Rebecca. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, we're watching The Black Cat. <gasps> From 1941. Oh, I thought it was from 34. This is a new version. It's still Universal, and it stars Bela Lugosi, and it also has Basil Rathbone in it. Huh. And it's not a remake of the 1934 version. It's just another, yet another movie with a plot kind of inspired by the Edgar Allan Poe Black Cat short story. Okay. Again. So, that means next time, I'll have research. Yeah. Hope everyone wants to hear about Edgar Allan Poe again. Did you know he was gross? Did you know he married his 13-year-old cousin or whatever? That's what I'm referring to when I say he was gross. So anyways, yeah. The Black Cat, uh, the 1941 version, next week. We will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye! Bye!